Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 224 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1945, as World War II was grinding to its close, a man named Edgar Casey died. He was famous throughout the land for the thousands of psychic readings he had given in hypnotic trances. People referred to him as the Sleeping Prophet. His influence on alternative medicine was so great that he's been referred to as the father of holistic medicine. He's also considered one of the fathers of the New Age movement. The extensive transcripts of his psychic readings make him the most documented psychic of the 20th century, and he's arguably the most famous psychic of the 20th century, with hundreds of books having been written about him. Who was Edgar Casey? What did his psychic readings say, and what should we make of them? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is a patron episode. Yes, uh, this patron episode was requested by Paul Leone, and Paul will be getting an extra episode for his support. Edgar Casey is a major figure in the history of the paranormal, so there's a lot to say about him. Uh, he's got a very interesting life story, and he made a lot of claims in his readings. As a result, uh, this will be a two-parter. Today, we'll tell you the story of Edgar Casey's life, and next week, we'll go into analysis mode and evaluate what he said in his readings. Excellent. So, Jimmy, you have a personal connection to this story? Yeah. Longtime listeners will know that when I was in my teenage years, I had a flirtation with the New Age movement. I'd been raised nominally Protestant without a strong religious background. And when I was a teen, I became a New Ager. Back then, Edgar Casey was the person I was most influenced by. I had dozens of Edgar Casey books, and I accepted his view of things basically without question. This was easier at the time because it was the 1970s and 1980s before some of his key prophecies were falsified. At one point, I corresponded with one of Edgar Casey's sons, who was the head of the foundation he started. His son was impressed with the questions I asked and said he hoped we could meet the next time he was in Arkansas. However, that never happened because he died in 1982, shortly after I corresponded with him. Eventually, I started to question things, and when I was 20, I had a profound conversion to Christ and became an evangelical Protestant. And when I was 27, after a prolonged Bible study, I became Catholic, which I have been ever since. Uh, since that was more than 27 years ago now, I've now been Catholic for the majority of my life. Excellent. So, Jimmy, who was Edgar Casey? He was born in 1877 in Kentucky, and he passed on in 1945 at age 67, which was quite a respectable age to live to at the time. Uh, he grew up near Hopkinsville, Kentucky, near the Tennessee border. And 10 years after his death in 1955, Hopkinsville became famous for an alien encounter known as the Hopkinsville Goblins case, uh, which is on the list of future topics for the show. Uh, Edgar was one of six children, and his family were farmers. They grew the dark tobacco for which Hopkinsville was famous. And like many in rural communities, his grandfather was a dowser who had success in finding underground water. And we will be talking about dowsing in future episodes. After his grandfather died, Edgar reported seeing the ghost of his grandfather on occasion. How did Edgar do in school as a boy? Not very well at first. He had difficulty keeping his mind on his lessons, and this led to some conflict at home. Edgar did enjoy reading, especially the Bible. In fact, in his adult life, he would read the Bible through once a year. He also would teach Sunday school at his Disciples of Christ Church. And in 1889, when he was 12, he had an unusual encounter while reading the Bible. In his biography of Edgar Casey, There is a River, Thomas Segrew reports Casey recounting, 
I had built a little playhouse for myself in the woods on a creek that ran through the old Casey place by a bend at the willows. Every afternoon I went there to read my favorite book. One spring day, when I was reading the story of Manoah for the thirteenth time, I looked up and saw a woman standing before me. I thought it was my mother come to fetch me home for the chores. Then I saw that she was not my mother and that she had wings on her back. She said to me, Your prayers have been answered, little boy. Tell me what it is you want most of all, so that I may give it to you. I was very frightened, but after a minute I managed to say, Most of all, I would like to be helpful to other people, especially children. Then she disappeared. Despite how much he enjoyed reading the Bible, he did not get good spelling marks at school. This was particularly embarrassing because his uncle Lucian taught at school, and the next day he asked Ed Edgar to spell the word cabin, which he couldn't. He made him stay after school and write it 500 times on the blackboard. And when he got home, he got in trouble with his father, who was known as Squire Casey because he was a justice of the peace. Squire Casey was furious when he came in. The family was disgraced, he said. Uncle Lucian had told him what a stupid son he had. All during supper, the squire talked about it. After supper, he took the spelling book and the boy and went into the parlor. You're going to start learning your lessons or I'll know the reason why, he said. Sit down here now and get to business. It was a long evening. Time after time, the squire would take the book and ask the lesson. The answers would be wrong. He would hand back the book and say grimly, All right, I'll ask it again in another half hour. The girls and the mother went to bed. At 10 o'clock, the answers were still wrong. The squire, exasperated, slapped the boy out of his chair, then hauled him up from the floor and set him down again. One more chance, he said. At half past 10, the answers were again wrong. Again, the boy was knocked out of his chair, landing on the floor. Slowly, he got to his feet. He was tired and sleepy. As he sat in the chair, he thought he heard something. His ears were ringing from the blow that had floored him, but he heard words inside him. It was the voice of the lady he had seen the day before. She was saying, If you can sleep a little, we can help you. He begged his father for a rest, just for a few minutes. He would know the lesson then, he was sure. I'm going into the kitchen, the squire said. When I come back, I'm going to ask you that lesson once more. It's your last chance. You better know it. He went out of the room. The boy closed his spelling book, put it back of his head, curled up in the chair, and almost immediately was asleep. When the squire returned from the kitchen, he snatched the book, waking him up. Ask me the lesson. I know it now, the boy said. The squire began. The answers came quickly, certainly. They were correct. Ask me the next day's lesson. I'll bet I know that too, he said. The squire asked the next lesson. All the answers were correct. Ask me anything in the book, the boy said. The squire skipped through the pages at random, asking the hardest words he saw. The answers were correct. The boy began to tell where the words occurred on the page and what the illustrations were. There's a picture of a silo on that page. The word synthesis is just under it. S-Y-N-T-H-E-S-I-S. -S -S. The squire closed the book and slammed it on the table. His patience was exhausted. What kind of nonsense is this, he roared. You knew that lesson all the time. You knew the whole book. What's the idea? Do you want to stay where you are in school so you won't have any more studying to do? Are you as lazy as all that? Do you want to stay in the third reader all your life? I didn't know it until I slept on it. Honest, the boy said. The squire knocked him out of the chair again. Go to bed, he said, before I lose my temper. The boy ran upstairs, taking his book with him. Under the covers, he prayed his thanks to the lady and hugged the speller. And this unusual study method became a regular thing. Apparently, Edgar could absorb the contents of a book by sleeping with it under his head, and he shot to the top of his class. That made his father proud of him, and Squire Casey started telling people about how smart Edgar was and how he could learn things just by sleeping on a book. This, in turn, caused Edgar to start being teased by some of the other boys who mockingly invited him to sleep on their lessons for them. One day in 1893, when Edgar was 16, he was at school and participating in a ball game known as Old Sow when he was struck at the end of his spine by the ball. In context, at the end of his spine apparently means the top of the spine, where it joins the back of the head. 
Afterwards, Edgar began acting strangely, and his father put him to bed. While in bed, Edgar calmed down and began talking. When he was under the covers, he became serious. He gave instructions for a poultice to be put on the back of his head near the base of the brain. He was suffering from shock, he said, and would be all right in the morning if the poultice were applied. What shall I do, the squire said to his wife. Make it, his wife said. There isn't anything in it that can hurt him. Cornmeal, onions, and some herbs. Come and help me. I'll fix it. When it was ready, they put it on the back of his head, and when he was satisfied with its position, he relaxed and went to sleep. Several times during the night, he shouted, Hurrah for Cleveland! and pounded the wall with his fist, but did not wake up. To keep him from harming himself, the squire pulled the bed away from the wall. When he opened his eyes the next morning, neighbors and relatives were sitting around the bed, keeping vigil. What's the matter, he said. Did I get run over? He remembered nothing from the time he had left Mr. Thom at recess. The squire told him what had happened. You told us it was a shock and to put the poultice on the back of your neck. How do you feel now? I'm fine. He jumped out of bed. Can I still go to the celebration in town tonight? The squire beamed at his relatives and friends. Cured himself, he said. Ever see the beat of it? I tell you, he's the greatest fellow in the world when he's asleep. Sure, we're going to the celebration, old man. We've got two things to celebrate. Adlai Stevenson getting elected vice president and you getting better. The relatives and friends said nothing. With thoughtful faces, they watched the boy get dressed, then filed out of the room and went downstairs. This would be the first time that Edgar would lie down, diagnose a medical condition, and recommend a course of treatment. However, it would be far from the last time. As an adult, he would become famous for doing this. Despite his new success in school, Edgar had to discontinue his education in the ninth grade after having completed the eighth grade because his family could no longer afford it. And in this day, an eighth grade education was considered quite sufficient for a working class young man like Edgar. Also, the schools were a lot stricter back then, and you learned more by the eighth grade than you would in many American schools today. Casey worked a number of different jobs as a young man, which is quite normal. But in 1900, when he was 23, he was struck by laryngitis, and it took away his voice. He had to live with his parents for almost a year because he was unable to work. Then he became an apprentice photographer, this being a job where he wouldn't have to strain his voice much. Later, he would become a photographer in his own right. Was he able to get treatment for his laryngitis? Not at first. The local doctors and even specialists they consulted were unable to cure him. But in 1901, a traveling hypnotist was performing in Hopkinsville. At the time, hypnotism was even less well understood than today, and people attributed all kinds of impressive effects to it. The hypnotist offered to see if he could put Edgar into a trance and if that would bring his voice back. It did, but only while Edgar was under hypnosis. His voice would vanish again when he would wake up, and the hypnotist couldn't get Edgar deep enough in a trance for a post-hypnotic suggestion to take. So Casey started working with a local hypnotist named Al Lane, and there was a repeat of when he prescribed his own cure as a child. Lane, watching, saw the breathing deepen. There was a long sigh, then the body seemed to sleep. The squire sat in a chair nearby. His wife, nervous, stood up. Lane began to talk in a low, soothing voice, suggesting that Edgar see his body and describe the trouble in the throat. He suggested that Edgar speak in a normal tone of voice. In a few minutes, Edgar began to mumble. Then he cleared his throat and began to speak in a clear, unafflicted voice. Yes, he said, we can see the body. Take it down, Lane said to the squire. The squire looked at him helplessly. The nearest pencil was in the kitchen, tied to the grocery list. In the normal state, Edgar went on, this body is unable to speak due to a partial paralysis of the inferior muscles of the vocal cords produced by nerve strain. This is a psychological condition producing a physical effect. This may be removed by increasing the circulation to the affected parts by suggestion while in this unconscious condition. The circulation to the affected parts will now increase, Lane said, and the condition will be removed. Edgar was silent. They watched his throat. The squire leaned over and further loosened his son's shirt. Gradually, the upper part of the chest, then the throat, turned pink. 
The pink had deepened to rose. The rose became a violent red. Ten, fifteen, twenty minutes passed. Edgar cleared his throat again. It is all right now, he said. The condition is removed. Make the suggestion that the circulation returned to normal, and that after that the body awakened. The circulation will return to normal, Lane said. The body will then awaken. They watched while the red faded back through rose to pink. The skin resumed its normal color. Edgar wakened, sat up, and reached for his handkerchief. He coughed and spat blood. Hello, he said tentatively. Then he grinned. Hey, he said, I can talk. I'm all right. His mother wept. His father seized his hand and shook it again and again. Good boy, good boy, good boy, he said. It was after this that the local hypnotist, Al Lane, suggested that if Casey could diagnose himself and recommend treatments while asleep, maybe he could do this for other people as well. And so Edgar Casey began offering what came to be known as readings for other people. All he needed to do this was to know the name and location of the person he was supposed to diagnose. In modern terms, he did not need to be front-loaded with information about their condition. If you'd like to know more about the issue of front-loading and how it's supposed to affect psychic functioning, you can go back and listen to episodes 102 and 103, where we introduced the topic of remote viewing. In his readings, Casey would go into a trance, which led to him being given the nickname The Sleeping Prophet. Characteristically, when he made contact with the target, he would say, We have the body. He would then describe the person's condition and how it might be treated. He also would answer questions put to him by an assistant, and the whole thing would be transcribed, after which a letter would be sent to the person with recommendations. Initially, Casey did this for people in his local area, but as word spread, people started writing him from distant locations and asking for readings. He also refused to take money for the readings. He was uncertain why he was able to do these things, but the thought that this might be a God-given ability made him reluctant to take money for it. How popular did the readings become? Extremely popular. By 1922, at which point he'd been doing readings for more than 20 years, it was estimated that he'd done more than 8,000 readings. But in 1923, they started to systematically record and archive the readings. And between 1923 and his death in 1945, he did between 13 and 14,000 more. The transcripts of these later readings still exist and are housed at the Association for Research and Enlightenment, an organization located in Virginia Beach, Virginia, that Casey went on to found. Members of the organization can read them online. Some, such as the following reading, have also been published. Here is a reading from 1935 for an 18-year-old woman who had been diagnosed with intestinal fever, or what we today would call gastroenteritis or stomach flu, though some physicians at the time thought it might be malaria or something else. The woman had received a couple of readings already, but in 1935, she became deathly ill, fell into a coma, and was not expected to live through the night, leading to a request for an emergency reading being made by telephone. They did one reading in the morning and another in the afternoon. Casey recommended several treatments in the first reading and then added further refinements in the second. Here's the second reading. Yes, we have had the body here before. As we find, conditions are still very serious. While there are those reactions that apparently make for bloating or swelling, the reactions are not bad if there is the ability to get the reaction through the alimentary canal now. We would give immediately a soda solution enema with the petrolagar enema following same. This we would repeat again in at least five or six hours if there is the response. Compound or combine this for the nausea, which will work with the system. Lime water, half ounce. Cinnamon water, half ounce. 10% solution iodide of potassium, 15 minims. 10% solution bromide of potassium, 30 minims. Shake the solution together. Give a teaspoonful in two teaspoonfuls of water. Let it be sipped rather than attempt to be swallowed every two hours. We would keep the poultice and the rub. These are the best stimulants as we find for the body in the present. Ready for questions. How much water should be used for the enema? 
a quart of tepid water for the first with a level tablespoonful of baking soda, a pint of tepid water for the last with a tablespoonful of petrolagar. Should the grape poultice be kept up constantly now? As indicated, keep it on for two to three hours, rest an hour, and then repeat again. Would a transfusion be of any benefit? We do not find it so in the present conditions. Have the suggestions been followed in the correct manner? Very good. Best they can under the conditions. Any particular kind of water the body should drink? Just the plain water, boiled. Casey gave additional readings to recommend adjustments to the treatment as the woman's condition changed, and despite the fact the woman was not expected to live the night, she survived and improved. They later received a letter from her in which she stated, Under the care of six physicians, I failed to respond to their treatment and was gradually growing worse. I responded immediately to the treatments recommended in an emergency reading obtained from Edgar Casey on September 21, 1935. I am now able to eat anything that is included in my diet and in better physical condition than before my illness. I have not had any recurrence of malaria, fever, or gastritis. You said they made transcripts of Casey's readings, but sound recording was starting to spread during his life. Did they ever record his actual voice? They did, but given the primitive home recording methods of the time, the sound isn't great. We'll have a link to where you can see a video with accompanying captions to make it easier to understand what he's saying. But here is an excerpt from a reading in which he describes how to make a customized massage preparation for a patient. The preparation includes rubbing alcohol, witch hazel, Russian white oil, benzoin, oil of sassafras, and olive oil. These are supposed to be shaken together and then massaged into the person's body near the sixth and seventh dorsal or thoracic vertebrae and the first and second cervical vertebrae. These regions are at the very top of the neck and in the middle back. Here's the audio, which I did some noise reduction and audio cleanup on. Rub alcohol and What was going on in Casey's personal life? In 1903, he married his sweetheart, Gertrude Evans, and they had three children, all boys. Their first son, Hugh Lynn Casey, came in 1907, and he was the son that I corresponded with when I was a new ager in the late 1970s, when he would have been around 70 years old. Their second son, Milton Porter Casey, came in 1911, and their third son, Edgar Evans Casey, came in 1918. Did Casey do medical readings on his family when they were sick or injured? He did, though Casey and his wife initially didn't have full confidence in them. In 1911, when their son Milton Porter was less than two months old, the baby became ill. At first, he had whooping cough, which was followed by colitis. They used conventional medical treatment, but when this didn't work, he did a reading. Unfortunately, the baby was too far gone at the time and passed on. Then his wife Gertrude became seriously ill with tuberculosis, and when she didn't respond to conventional medical treatment, they did a reading, followed the advice, and she improved. In 1914, his eldest son, Hugh Lynn, was seven years old and was playing in his father's photography studio. Boys love playing with matches, and Hugh Lynn made a big pile of photographic flash powder, set a match to it, and severely burned his eyes. Conventional treatment was of no use, and the doctors said that they needed to remove one of his eyes. 
Hewlin begged his father to do a reading, which he did. Afterwards, the solution recommended was applied, and Hewlin reportedly said, That must be daddy's medicine. It doesn't hurt. And his eye and his sight were saved. You mentioned that Hugh Lin had his accident in his father's photography studio. So he had ceased being an apprentice at this point and was working on his own? Yes. Uh, Casey also sought to make money in other ways. In fact, he did some game design work, which is something I also did when I was younger. Casey designed a card game called Pit. The game is based on trading commodities on the Chicago Board of Trade, which is known as the Pit. And the goal of the game is cornering the wheat market. He sold it to Parker Brothers, which promptly copyrighted it in their own name. They then refused to pay Edgar any royalties, though they did send him 12 free decks of the cards. So he didn't make any money off of it. However, despite being a card game about cornering the wheat market on the Chicago Board of Trade, the game became popular, very popular, and it's still being produced today. We'll have a link to where you can get a copy if you'd like to play. The game is reportedly quite fast-paced, and I suspect it would be especially popular on Ferenginar, where it might be used as a warm-up before aspiring young Ferengi learn to play tango. However, even with the photography business, uh, finances could still be tough for the Casey family, and as the demand for readings grew after the thousands they had done, Edgar eventually reconsidered the fact that he wasn't taking any money for them. So he started asking for voluntary donations so that he could devote his full-time efforts to meet the demand. Casey appeared to meet with success with his health readings, with various customers coming back for additional readings after the initial ones helped them. But psychic functioning is thought to be unreliable. Did Casey ever have readings that failed? He did, though the reason for the failure was debated. After World War I ended, Casey conceived the idea of building a hospital that would use the medical principles that were coming out in the readings, along with traditional medicine. Uh, this was in part because the readings sometimes indicated that treatments needed to be used that only a traditional medical doctor could administer. For example, a reading might say that a person losing their hearing needed surgery on a particular part of their auditory system. But because these procedures were being recommended by a psychic in a trance, many doctors were reluctant to perform them or perform them soon enough to help the patient. Casey thus decided it would be a good idea to establish a hospital that would be staffed with doctors who were familiar with and trusted the medical procedures coming through in his health readings. Such an institution also would allow his psychic functioning to be better studied scientifically and the principles he was getting through the readings could eventually become a part of established medicine and benefit people in general. To build and staff a hospital, he'd need a significant amount of money. How do you plan to get that? One option was through local fundraising. At one point, a group of people in Alabama was willing to get the startup money together, but the readings insisted that the hospital needed to be built in the coastal town of Virginia Beach, Virginia, not Alabama and the backers in Alabama lost interest. On another occasion, Edgar started giving readings for a group of men who wanted to drill for oil in Texas, and they would use the proceeds to build the hospital. The readings identified a site to drill at, and the group leased the mineral rights to the land, and that's something I know something about, because my siblings and I own the mineral rights to our part of the family ranch in Texas. Um, in locations where there is a potential for oil or natural gas, even when you sell the surface rights to the land so that someone can build a house or graze cattle or whatever, you keep the mineral rights. Uh, you may, from time to time, receive inquiries from oil or natural gas companies that are interested in drilling on the land. And what happened after Casey's business partners leased the mineral rights to the site where the reading said oil could be found? They started drilling, but there were a lot of complications and delays. Uh, they continued to do new readings to check on things like the kind of strata that they would be drilling through next, but the readings also indicated that if the people involved weren't in agreement about how the money would be used, the project would ultimately come to nothing. Sabotage started occurring repeatedly at the drill site, and this caused both delays and fostered suspicions among the partners. 
Some were accused of deliberately performing the sabotage to delay the project long enough for the lease on the mineral rights to expire so that they could then be snapped up and then a different constellation of players could benefit from the well. The accused replied that it wasn't them. The sabotage must be the work of outsiders who presumably had the same goal of waiting until the leases ran out. Some in Casey's family thought that the partners might simply be after the money and didn't really plan to build a hospital, or at least not to properly fund one. Ultimately, money for the project ran out, and in the summer of 1922, they had to shut down. This represented a disappointing failure for Casey. But in 1923, Casey met a man who would be pivotal in his career and change the direction of his life. Mm, and I'll ask who that man is in a moment. But first, I want to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Zoran L., Kim L., Michael S., Gwyn M., and Gary S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest. I need to ask for your help. But first, I want to thank you for listening to StarQuest and supporting our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture. In order to continue that mission and create more new shows, we need to bring on more audio editors, video editors, and production equipment. If you value this show, we need to hear from you now. If you're not yet one of our monthly patrons, please become one. And if you're already a patron, please consider increasing your monthly donation. There are many special patron benefits we'd like to give you, and you can learn about them by going to sqpn.com slash give and clicking become a patron. Please go to sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. So, Jimmy, who was it that Casey met in 1923, and how did it change his life? At the time, Casey and his family were living in Selma, Alabama. Their eldest son, Hugh Lynn, was 16 at the time and was enrolled in Selma High School, and Edgar was working his photography business. Then, one day, a man from Dayton, Ohio, arrived. His name was Arthur Lammers, and he wanted Edgar to do some readings for him. Thomas Segrew explains, The readings were not to be for sick people. He was quite well himself, and so were the members of his family. He had other interests, philosophy, metaphysics, esoteric astrology, psychic phenomena. He asked questions Edgar did not understand. What were the mechanics of the subconscious? What was the difference between spirit and soul? What were the reasons for personality and talent? He mentioned such things as the Kabbalah, the mystery religions of Egypt and Greece, the medieval alchemists, the mystics of Tibet, yoga, Madame Blavatsky, and theosophy, the great white brotherhood, the etheric world. Edgar was dazed. You ought to find out about these things, Lammers said. If there's any way of finding it out, it's through you. The world is full of notions about its own beginning, its meaning, and its end. There are hundreds of philosophic and thousands of theological systems, which are right and which are wrong, which is the closest to the truth, what is the real nature of the soul, and what is the purpose of this experience on earth? Where do we go from here? What for? Where did we come from? What were we doing before we came here? Haven't you asked any of those questions? No, Edgar said. He couldn't think of another word to say. He didn't dare tell the truth that he'd always considered such an idea sacrilegious because God was revealed in the Bible, and to suppose that he could answer the mysteries of the universe would be an open invitation for Satan to speak through him. That was what he had felt. Now, as he heard Lammers speak, he knew the feeling had passed. He had not been aware of its passing, but it was gone. As Lammers tossed questions, he felt something spring up within himself, something which said, this is the way to get the answer. I can only stay here a few days, Lammers went on, but if you will come to Dayton as my guest, I'll take a series of readings on these subjects and see what we get. 
And so Casey went up to Dayton to do readings for Lammers. In the first reading, Lammers was going to ask about his horoscope, and Edgar was concerned about what he might say in the trance. Lammers conducted the reading. When Edgar woke up, he spoke to him gravely. There is something wrong with our notion of astrology, apparently, he said. It doesn't affect us as we think it does. Edgar smiled. He was relieved. We leave out a factor that is very important, Lammers went on. What's that? Reincarnation. Edgar stared. Lammers began to laugh. You thought astrology was a fake before, he said. And now you hand out a story that's a dozen times more fantastic than the rule of the stars. You say, I've lived before on this earth. You say that this is my third appearance in this sphere and that I still have some of the inclinations from my last life when I was a monk. Mechanically, Edgar put on his tie, fastened his cufflinks, and tied his shoelaces. Is that the stuff they believe in India, he asked? Is that reincarnation? Lammers nodded. You say, he went on, that the solar system is a cycle of experiences for the soul. It has eight dimensions corresponding to the planets. They represent focal points for the dimensions or environments in which the dimensions can express and materialize themselves, although materialization of each dimension is different. This is the third dimension, and it's a sort of laboratory for the whole system because only here is free will completely dominant. On the other planes, or dimensions, some measure of control is kept over the soul to see that it learns the proper lessons. The control is usually by the soul itself, if it has evolved sufficiently, because once the body of this dimension has been left and the consciousness of this life has been absorbed into the subconscious, the veil between the two is lifted. The subconscious, you see, is a record of all the lives of the soul in this system and in other systems out among the stars. It's the record we think of as being kept by the recording angel. It's the story of what we do with our spirit, the portion of God that is given to us for life with the gift of individuality or separate existence from God. Our problem is to perfect our individuality and then we return to God. Our spirit, soul, or individuality are joined to him. Edgar shook his head. I said all that? He asked in a low tone. Lammers nodded. So you see, Lammers said, our astrological influences from the planets or dimensions we've inhabited will be good or bad, weak or strong, according to the experiences we've had there and how we handled our problems. For example, we react to Earth according to the manner in which we have handled the problems of Earth in our other lives. Sometimes we are working on an Earth problem to the exclusion of any influence from the stars or planets at all. The stars represent soul patterns, not experiences. The 12 signs of the zodiac are 12 patterns from which the soul chooses when coming into the Earth plane. They are like races, patterns of temperament, personality, etc. Edgar interrupted him. I couldn't have said all that in one reading, he said. No, Lammers said, but you confirmed it. You see, I've been studying metaphysics for years, and I was able, by a few questions and by the facts that you gave, to check what is right and what is wrong with a whole lot of the stuff I've been reading. So, Jimmy, how did Edgar react to this news? It set off a period of intense soul-searching for him. Uh, this was a man, Edgar, who was very religious, who was a Sunday school teacher and who read the Bible through every year. And he was not at all sure how concepts like this, including reincarnation, could be squared with his Christian faith. Lammers was ready for him, though. He started giving Edgar passages from the Bible, which he said could be squared with reincarnation. And he put his own spin on Christian teaching, as well as relating, relating a bunch of what we would now call New Age concepts that Edgar didn't understand. Edgar shook his head. I haven't the slightest idea of what you're talking about, he confessed. What interests me is this. You say that I agree with all this stuff in my reading. Does that imply that my subconscious mind understands it? Or was I just being a stooge for your suggestions? And that was a good question to ask, one which we'll come back to. But Lammers was eager to press on and do more readings so that he could get to the bottom of all the mysteries he was obsessed with. He even offered to move Edgar's family up to Dayton and to support them 
while they conducted the readings. After a lot of pondering and despite misgivings, Edgar decided to take him up on the offer. After all, the family finances were really tight, and here was someone offering to provide a degree of financial security. Thomas Segrew tells the story of the relocation to Dayton from the perspective of the eldest son, Hugh Lynn. As the train approached Dayton, Hugh Lynn looked more and more apprehensively at the barren fields he was passing. They were powdered with snow, their trees were bare, the wind lashed their thin patches of dead grass. He wiggled his feet nervously. There were holes in his shoes. He had no galoshes. His overcoat was light, unlined. The temperature in Selma when he left was 60. Here it must be 40 below. There was more than the weather to be apprehensive about. They were to live in Dayton, where the readings were to be backed by Mr. Lammers, who was rich. That was all he knew. In Selma, where he had remained with family friends in order to finish the school term, he had become embarrassed for pocket money and for such things as socks, ties, and a new pair of shoes. Finally, a few days before Christmas, the money for his transportation to Dayton arrived, just enough to get him there. What was the matter? What had happened to the rich Mr. Lammers? His family met him at the station and bustled him off to a streetcar. Finally, they got home. It was an upstairs apartment in a not-too-fashionable section. Then he asked point-blank what the matter was. Where was Lammers with all his money? His father explained. Lammers had gotten into financial difficulties. He was enmeshed in lawsuits that kept him in Cincinnati and required his presence in court every day. All his money was tied up. He was in danger of losing his home in Dayton. He had been, been unable to contribute to the work since early November. Let's go back to Selma, Hewlin said. He was cold. The wind whistling against the window panes frightened him. Edgar shook his head. And the worst for Yulin was yet to come, because then they started explaining to him about the whole reincarnation business. When they finished eating, they told him about the new type of reading. It was called a life reading and about reincarnation. You never told me anything about that in Sunday school, Yulin said. Is it true? Do you believe it? Is it in the Bible? He asked questions quickly to cover the feeling of bitterness and shame that was sweeping over him. It was bad enough that his father was psychic. The boys continually asked him, what's the matter with your dad? What's that stuff he does? But now it was worse. They weren't even to be Christians anymore. They were to be heathens. And not even rich heathens, just poor heathens living with Yankees. I don't know whether I believe it or not, Edgar said. The readings say it's true. A lot of people believe it. It sounds logical. So even though they were going to be poor heathens living with Yankees, Edgar was not convinced of reincarnation, but he was open to it. And life readings, where Casey went into a trance and described the previous incarnations of a person, became a significant portion of his overall work. Just as he started giving lots of health readings, once people learned he was doing those, people also started applying to him for life readings now that he had begun doing these. Did they become his most popular type of reading? No, the health readings were still dominant. Uh, Casey remained best known as a healer. The archives have about 14,500 readings on file, and all but a 1,000 of those or so date from after 1923. That was the same year he, they started rigorously archiving them and the same year he met Arthur Lammers. In his book, Edgar Cayce in Context, The Readings, The Truth, and Fiction, K. Paul Johnson gives a statistical analysis of them. He notes that the surviving Cayce work amounts to a voluminous 49,000 pages. That's the equivalent of 250 200-page books. And he summarizes the content of the readings this way. More than two-thirds of these were medical readings on a wide variety of ailments. Life readings provide spiritual and psychological advice, as well as information about previous incarnations, account for 14% of the total. Business questions were answered in 5% of the readings, and another 4% gave dream interpretations for individuals. Among the remaining miscellaneous readings were many answering questions from Casey's co-workers concerning goals and methods of implementing his ideas in organizational form, which are now known as the work readings. So essentially, Johnson divides the surviving post-1923 readings into five basic categories. Medical readings are around 67% of the total, or two-thirds. 
Life readings are around 14% of the total. Business readings are around 5% of the total. Dream interpretation readings are around 4% of the total. And the remaining 10%, including work readings on topics requested uh, by coworkers about how to plan, organize, and implement Casey's organizational goals. With the medical readings around 67%, or almost five times more popular than the life readings, Casey remained primarily a psychic diagnostician and recommender of treatments. In his later readings, Casey touched on a lot of topics, not just reincarnation, but a lot of other things now associated with the New Age movement. What were some of them? We've already mentioned astrology, which was the first thing Lammers asked him to do a reading on. In addition, Casey also touched on topics like the lost continent of Atlantis, ancient Egypt, and a much older civilization than uh, is recognized by conventional Egyptology, as well as predictions for things that would be happening in the course of the 20th century. Because so many of the things his readings talked about are now associated with the New Age movement, Casey himself has sometimes been regarded as one of the fathers of the New Age movement. Since Arthur Lamers hadn't been able to fulfill his commitments to Casey due to business problems, how long did the family remain in Dayton? Not that long. They arrived at the end of 1923, and they left in 1925. While in Dayton, Casey was visited by a man named Morton Blumenthal, who was in partnership with his brother and was becoming wealthy from his activities on Wall Street in New York. Blumenthal initially came to Casey for a health reading, and his condition improved afterwards. He also had a life reading and other readings and became both convinced and very interested in helping further Casey's work. Casey told him about the idea of establishing a hospital in Virginia Beach, and Blumenthal said he would back it. He also bought Casey a house in Virginia Beach, and the family moved there. How did they proceed with their plans to set up a hospital? First, in 1927, they incorporated a group in Virginia known as the Association for National Investigations. This group would oversee the scientific study of the readings and build the hospital. And the hospital opened the next year, in late 1928. Wouldn't they have to clear a lot of regulatory hurdles to build a hospital, especially when using non-traditional treatments based on Casey's readings? There certainly were issues they had to deal with, though the regulatory hurdles weren't nearly as burdensome back then as they are now. For both good and bad, uh, government regulation has dramatically expanded in the last hundred years. But there were concerns about legal exposure, especially with non-traditional treatments. To mitigate these, people requesting readings were required to join the overall organization and agree that they were participating in an experiment on psychic research. How successful was the hospital once it opened? It proved quite popular with a waiting list for patients that was three months long. This was in part because the hospital, by today's standards, was actually quite small. The building still exists today, and it looks basically like a very large four-story house. It only had 30 beds. What about the scientific study of Casey's readings? How was that being handled? A few months before the hospital opened, Casey made an important contact from Washington and Lee University. Thomas Segrew explains, One afternoon, early in 1928, a short, stocky man with a great many gold keys on his watch chain drove up to the house. He introduced himself as Dr. William Mosley Brown, head of the psychology department at Washington and Lee. Hugh Lynn is one of my students, he said. I made a statement that I could expose any medium. He told me to come down here and expose his father. He smiled. Edgar smiled. They shook hands and Dr. Brown settled down to ask questions. He examined readings, listened to several, and finally, running his fingers through his thinning hair, admitted he was stumped. I can't expose it, he said. Still, it's not the sort of thing you can do nothing about. I can't ignore it. I'll have to believe in it. He joined the association, had a reading for himself, and got others for members of his family. Edgar wagged his head in wonder. The millennium has come, he said. So now Casey was getting respect from William Mosley Brown, the head of the psychology department at a prestigious university. 
This led to a plan to start a university of their own, with Blumenthal backing it just as he was backing the hospital. And the university would eventually do psychic research. Despite how well things seemed to be going, there was trouble looming on the horizon. The hospital opened in 1928, and the next year, 1929, saw the stock market crash that is commonly used to mark the beginning of the Great Depression. How well did they weather these events? At first, they did okay. Uh, The Great Depression was not an all-or-nothing event that affected everyone all at once. So they were able to keep moving with their plans, and in 1930, they opened the university with Dr. William Mosley Brown, formerly of Washington and Lee, as its president. It was known as Atlantic University. But back in 1930, there were problems brewing. In the first place, Dr. Brown, the first president of Atlantic University, and Milton Blumenthal, the financial backer, had very different ideas about the direction the university should proceed in. Brown wanted it to build a reputation as a large, high-prestige academic institution before starting to undertake psychic research, while Blumenthal, the financial guy, wanted it to be smaller and to focus on philosophical and esoteric subjects immediately. Furthermore, launching the university was putting a strain on Blumenthal's finances. Initially, he'd been funding the hospital entirely out of his own pocket. That came to be partially offset by income that the hospital received once patients started coming in, but Blumenthal's finances were dependent on his fortunes on Wall Street, and after the stock market crashed, things were not going well for him. He became convinced that the hospital was being run in an economically inefficient manner and that expenses needed to be curtailed. Thomas Segrou describes a particularly tense meeting of the board of the Association for National Investigations. When the meeting was called to order, Morton began to speak. He sketched the history of the hospital in terms of money, his money. When it was opened, it cost him $3,000 a month, or $50,000 today, after the inflation the government has caused. Gradually, this had been cut down by income from patients. During one month, the income from patients had matched the overhead. Now, however, the hospital owed nearly $10,000, or $170,000 today, for items of overhead. Obviously, there had been waste and extravagance. Though it was a place of healing, it ought to be run on a more business-like basis. Therefore, it was his suggestion that the association turn the hospital back to him and his brother with the understanding that the bills would be paid and everything kept running as usual. Would the board vote on this suggestion? A vote was taken. The members, stunned by the proposal, automatically voted against it. It was defeated. Morton was irritated. He said something about withdrawing all funds and forcing the hospital to close. His brother, Edwin, spoke about the seriousness of the situation and suggested another vote. Edgar got up to speak. I have every confidence in Mr. Blumenthal, he said. He built the hospital. He has maintained it. He understands the work I do better than almost anyone else. I am sure he is desirous of continuing the efforts we have so well begun. It would mean very little to me to have the hospital without his cooperation and interest. I suggest the board accede to his request. And the board did. Ownership of the hospital was transferred back to Blumenthal. Did that solve the problem? Temporarily, but the depression continued to get worse. Blumenthal kept the hospital open, and he paid for the first semester of operations at the university, but then he withdrew support for the university, and in February of 1931, he pulled the plug on his involvement with the association and the hospital. Since he was the head of the association, this meant shutting the association down entirely, and the hospital stopped operations at the end of the month. The records of all the readings Edgar had done were being stored in the hospital. What happened to them? Edgar had them taken home and kept them in his house. Now that the hospital was shut down and Blumenthal had pulled all his funding, what happened to the university? It survived. Uh, Dr. William Mosley Brown had to implement austerity measures, but he kept it going, and it still exists today, though it's changed significantly. Today, it's a distance learning university with accreditation where people can take courses online. And what happened with Casey and his family? 
They consulted their supporters and incorporated a new group to replace the Association for National Investigation now that Blumenthal was out of the picture. In July of 1931, they incorporated a new group called the Association for Research and Enlightenment. And this group would stick. It still exists today and curates Casey's vast collection of materials. The Association for Research and Enlightenment, or ARE as it is known, was a fairly modest organization. In Casey's lifetime, it had an average membership of between 500 and 600 people, and about half of those turned over every year, which is a pretty high churn rate, uh, to use a publishing industry turn. But the other half of the membership, around 250 to 300 people, was able to support the organization at a basic level. Around 1940, they raised the funds to build a library, an office, and a vault for the readings. These were contained in a unit that was built onto the Casey home. The next year, the U.S. entered World War II, and we talked about the circumstances surrounding that in episodes 184 and 185 on Pearl Harbor and the Soviet mole Harry Dexter White. What happened with the Caseys during the war? Both of Casey's surviving sons went into the military during the war. Um, while the war was still going on, in 1943, Thomas Segrew published his biography of Edgar Casey, There is a River. So the book we've been hearing quotations from was published during Casey's life. Segrew knew the Caseys, stayed with them, and the book is based on his firsthand interviews with the people involved. In effect, it's Casey's authorized biography. And today, the Association for Research and Enlightenment recommends it on their webpage. As a result of the book coming out, a lot more people became interested in Casey, and requests for reading started pouring in. In particular, they came from people whose loved ones were fighting overseas in the war. Uh, some of their relatives were missing in action, and they were desperate to know what was going on with them. The demand for readings grew to the point that the mailman could no longer carry all the letters to the Casey's house, and Casey's wife Gertrude had to go to the post office and bring them home by car. Was Casey able to meet the demand for readings? Not really. His ideal rate of doing readings was just two a day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. But during the war, he raised the number he did per day to between four and six, and eventually he raised it to eight per day, but he was unable to keep up with all the requests. In the one-year period between June 1943 and June 1944, he gave almost 1,400 readings, and in August 1944, he collapsed. He gave his final reading on September 14, 1944, and he gave it for himself. The key question to be answered was how he should deal with the situation. The answer that came back was that he was to stop giving readings and to go away and rest. When Gertrude asked for how long, the answer was, Until he is well or dead. So he and his wife went to Roanoke in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia to recuperate. Edgar got better, but then he had a stroke. He ended up passing from this life on January 3rd, 1945. What happened after he passed? Gertrude also died of cancer a few months later, but his son Hugh Lynn ran the Association for Research and Enlightenment for the next 37 years until his death in 1982. Edgar's longtime secretary, Gladys Davis, helped catalog and archive the materials that were left behind and today, more than 90 years later, the ARE continues promoting his work. It's a fairly modest organization, and since it's a nonprofit, I looked up its financial statements, which are on its website. These include a statement released by the auditors, who they have perform an independent audit each year. And uh, both of those are good things for nonprofits to do, to both have annual independent audits and to post the financials on their website. The audit includes consolidated information about not just the ARE, but two associated organizations, the Edgar Casey Foundation and Atlantic University. They have an endowment of about $3 million, and if you back their liabilities out of their assets, they have a total net assets of about $11 million, most of which are held by the ARE itself. But their liquidity is not very high. 
only about $2 million are available to them within a given year, but they're doing their thing, continuing to promote the teachings of Edgar Casey. So that does it for this week. Next week, we go into analysis mode and start evaluating Edgar Casey and the claims about him. What theories about Edgar Casey will we be looking at? As always, we're going to look at this mystery from both the perspectives of faith and reason. From the reason perspective, we need to consider whether there is a natural or a paranormal explanation for all this. Uh, could Casey's readings have been the product of his imagination? Could he have been a hoaxer? Could he have been a genuine psychic? Could the explanation be more complex than that? What does the evidence say? And what should we make of Casey's claims from the faith perspective? All right. So as we finish up today, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer? We'll have a link to Thomas Segrew's book, There is a River. Also, K. Paul Johnson's book, Edgar Casey in Context. And Edgar Evans Casey and Hugh Lynn's Casey's book, The Outer Limits of Edgar Casey's Power. We'll also have a link uh, to where you can purchase the Pit card game uh, designed by Casey. Also, information uh, on Edgar Casey from a couple of online encyclopedias. We'll have that video of the voice recording and also another Casey voice recording, as well as information about the Pit game and Atlantic University. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, our first headline is about a noodling Oklahoma fisherman who killed a partner to avoid being fed to Bigfoot. Um, noodling is a is a hands-on method of catching fish where you don't use a hook or line. You just grab them. And uh, there was an Oklahoma gentleman who went noodling with a buddy. And while they were noodling the fish, he became convinced that his buddy was trying to summon Bigfoot for purposes of feeding him to Bigfoot. And he defended himself lethally. There was more going on with this guy. He also later got arrested for delivering meth to a place. And mm. wow, it is a weird story. So you can <laughs> you can check that out. I wonder if that's um, related, those two things, the delivering <laughs> meth and seeing Bigfoot, imagining Bigfoot was coming. Yeah. And that you're going to be fed to Bigfoot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. possibly. possibly. Um, on a brighter note, uh, people will know about the recent James Webb Space Telescope and all the exciting uh, test images that they released just to test out the systems on the satellite. Well, now that the testing has been done and has been very successful, there are there's serious scientific work to do. So we'll have a link to what's next for the James Webb Space Telescope. And you can check out all the different kinds of scientific studies they're going to be doing. Yeah, the the first image is just fantastic. It's I love seeing those. It's amazing. So that's it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories about Edgar Casey and his life. You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7, who do the video and animation work on Mysterious World. Be sure to check out the work that they do by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we have the enhanced video version of Mysterious World for you. And I am trying to grow my channel. So uh, while you're there, please do click the, uh, the link to subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you'll always get a notice whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we go into analysis mode and evaluate Edgar Casey's readings and how they are best explained. Fantastic. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt or mug or other items in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 224. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.